Cosmos greetings. Welcome to episode three of Prolet Cult, the monthly Antifada sub-podcast about space, exobiology, the paranormal and parapolitical, futurism, and sci-fi. At the end of today's program, I'm going to review the fifth season of Black Mirror. So this is your spoiler alert that I will be talking about those episodes in detail and in an unnecessarily agitated tone. Before that, I'm going to talk to Eric Davis, a writer who probes the intersections of myth, magic, and technology, the author of the new book, High Weirdness, a look at the psychedelic futurist counterculture of the mid-70s in California, with particular emphasis on Terrence McKenna, Philip K. Dick, and Robert Anton Wilson. I wanted to interview Eric because Wilson was a pretty big influence on me as a teen. His Illuminatus trilogy tackles the entirety of the conspiratorial worldview, with a caustic cynicism that highlights the absurdity and playfulness of these narratives that are ultimately best understood as fiction. But later in life, Wilson, like Dick, began to get high on his own sci-fi supply. And Davis's book is a masterful deconstruction of that phenomena, which I think gets at the heart of my interest in the subject matter of this podcast. I just want to note that Eric and I did this interview on a lovely afternoon walking around his old neighborhood, the East Village, but the first bit was cut off, so my apologies for that, and the slightly reduced audio quality as well. With that out of the way, please enjoy my interview with Eric Davis on High Weirdness. Why don't you get, introduce us to, to these characters and what was going on in their lives? Yeah, the, the, the person I was first really interested in was uh, Philip K. Dick, the science fiction writer that you know, most people know at this point. But you know, a couple of decades ago when I first got into him was still kind of a cult figure. And he had this famous experience in 1974, a kind of God consciousness, quasi-psychotic, uh, you know, quasi-brilliant, something he almost kind of almost scripted himself based on his own ideas. Uh, a real singular person with a real singular experience. But one of the things, as a student of religion, because I was uh, just got my, this book is based on my PhD, although it's rewritten for you know broader audience. Uh, that one of the things that's fascinating about Dick is he wrote about his so much about his experiences. So you have this whole corpus by this brilliant writer as he's sort of trying to figure out what, what happened to him in 1974. So it's a really interesting kind of object to study. I'm like, oh, I'm going to do that. And I worked on the exegesis as an editor when they published it in 2011. So, um, sure, yeah, he, uh, the, the kind of boil, boiled down, this, the way the story eventually became was that he was, uh, a delivery woman came to his door and she had this uh, golden fish necklace, you know, like the Christian fish symbol. And it zapped him, or it reminded him of something. He told the story always a little differently. It, it evolved over time, and that's part of the point. But uh, this experience sort of uh, opened him up, and he had all the whole series of paranormal, what we might call psychic downloads and dream states, synchronicities. Um, and all the while, he's trying to figure out who's contacting him, and he feels like there's another personality in him that he's in, he's in touch with other kinds of intelligences. They're they're speaking to him in code, so stuff that sounds kind of psychotic. But you know, maybe when you ha when you have a psychotic break, but you're like a really brilliant speculative thinker, it becomes more interesting because <laughs> it's not just straight psychosis; something else is going on. And, uh, yeah, he, he really thought about it for the rest of his life. And if you're into Philip K. Dick, it's like one of the kind of fascinating points about his life. How do we think about this? Back in the old days when, when you know, uh, people first wrote about his work, they kind of distrusted a lot of his late work because they thought he went a little crazy or he became like new age because he got, was more interested in ideas of like information networks and, you know, uh, alien intelligence and things that... Maybe his early works were a little bit more um, obviously kind of politically located. Uh, but by now, people recognize that they're in some ways also continuous with his early work and also very interesting in their, in their own right. So that's what I, I wanted to do. But I didn't, in the end, I didn't want to um, just write about Dick because in a way you're just like kind of going down the rabbit hole of one person's absolutely peculiar experience. I was like, I don't want to get lost in there. Like, you know, that's, that's where I'm, I'm going to be in the mines for three years. 
Well, it, it certainly was a peculiar experience, and anyone who's read his later work, uh, especially Vallis, knows how strange he was thinking at that time, believing that the Roman Empire hadn't fallen, that there's a communist conspiracy against him. And there's so many good stories about him, but one is that he, he thought Stanislaw Lem, who was the biggest Philip K. Dick fan in Europe, was this conspiracy of the, the Communist Party of Poland to, uh, to steal his work or kill him or something like that. Um, so he was, he was very paranoid. But the work he was making at that time was, was very interesting, and you had this sense that he is science fiction, but he believed it which is another major theme of your book. Yeah, just for the record, uh, Dick, Dick's experience at that point was down in uh, Fullerton uh, in the OC, which is kind of an interesting twist because he was always a very Berkeley Bay Area kind of, kind of character. Uh, but, uh, yeah, <clears throat> around the same time, uh, you know, Robert Anton Wilson, older fe- figure, grew up in uh, Brooklyn, uh, polymath in some ways, you know, really a, a great reader of a lot of different kinds of uh, discourses, sciences, psychology, Buddhism, existentialism, tr- transactional analysis, all this kind of stuff was uh, floating around in his head. And he was in Berkeley at that point, um, having uh, written in the past this uh, important, if, if, if uh, kind of grueling shaggy dog of a book called... Uh, Shaggy Dog story of a book called The Illuminatus Trilogy, which he co-wrote with a fellow uh, editor at Playboy magazine, which is kind of like a the, the, just this massive piss take on conspiracy culture, occult culture, radical politics, uh, and written with a lot of uh, humor, uh, body, underground comics kind of energy, but also a lot of uh, really interesting ideas that would later get developed in, in some ways kind of a prophetic book, especially for our current conspiratorial age. Um, but definitely written with a certain distance. But what, uh, what Wilson became interested in is this idea of, of personal kind of... Uh, brain change or experimenting on your own experience, the idea that you can uh, uh, kind of play with what John Lilly called metaprogramming by adopting different possibilities and then particularly with the use of acid or sex magic or some other consciousness changing technology sort of explore the worlds of possible experience partly by kind of programming them in advance. And so he kind of embarked on this deeply experimental path, and somewhere along the way, <coughs> he lost the plot. <laughs> or rather, he became more or less convinced that he was being communicated with by, uh, by disincarnate intelligences associated with the star system Sirius. Yeah, so this was always a big mystery to me until I read your book, because when I was a teenager, I read the Illuminatus trilogy, it was like recommended to me on a conspiracy forum, and I thought that this was going to, because it's sort of marketed as like this will tell you what's really going on in the world. But then you read it; it's this massive work of satire and humor and metafiction, um, and that sort of gave me this ironic distance from the conspiracy and paranormal culture. And then I, I picked up some more Robert Anton Wilson later, uh, the, the, the Cosmic Trigger series. And in this book, he's saying, kind of straight-faced, there's alien species in the Sirius constellation that's trying to contact us. And I was like, wait a second, did he actually believe that? Yeah, very well said. I mean, what uh, later on, Wilson came to identify the state that he got into as Chapel Perilous, which is this place where, you know, it all starts seeming true. And he says there's only two ways out of Chapel Perilous. Either uh, you come out a radical agnostic or a stone-cold paranoid. And for a while, he was a stone-cold paranoid. But part of what interests me, then, is how people find themselves facing these extraordinary experiences and these bizarre belief systems that they're attracted to on some level, that are meaningful on some level, but then getting kind of stuck in them and how they... Uh, wiggle their way out or how they think their way through the consequences of these experiences which are both kind of like religious experiences in the traditional sense but also not kind of like psychotic experiences in a psychological sense but also not really because they're too coherent they're a lot like obviously psychedelic experiences even Phil Dick's non-psychedelic experience has this quality of psychedelia but they, they at least the ones I look at go beyond 
the kind of arc of like a single acid trip or something, and they go into this much larger, again, kind of metafiction quality. And, you know, one way of looking at it is just that human beings, you know, we live, we live in our beliefs um, and that the mechanism of belief is, is fungible and hackable in some sense. We can hack it ourselves. Propaganda can hack it for us. Uh, once we have beliefs, they, they shape the reality that we're experiencing. That, the, the knowledge of that kind of process, in a way, is sort of like the, that's kind of under, underscores a lot of where we are today is that the cat's out of the bag and everybody's playing the game very aggressively. <clears throat> So in some ways, what these people are doing, even though they're, they're very fringe experiences, I think, actually let us recognize just how strange uh, our own experience can become, how uh, slippery beliefs can be, and then also, and probably maybe most importantly, how we can develop cognitive tools, conceptual structures, skeptical positions that enable us not to just write off the whole thing as a bunch of bullshit, because even if we do that, that's still where a lot of people are living, uh, at least in the broader sense of conspiracy theories and alien stories and all those sorts of psychedelic possibilities, you know, ayahuasca is a goddess out of the jungle, all these things that are becoming more and more part of mainstream possibility, uh, that how to sort of think through them without necessarily just uh, writing it all off as a bunch of bollocks. And that, that's the fine line that's being walked, or what I call the tightrope walk uh, in the book, is, is maintaining a kind of skeptical element or a critical distance, even as the world around you becomes more and more uh, hallucinogenic. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you think uh, Terrence McKenna was, was maybe the most clear-minded at, at walking that tightrope? Is that fair to say? Uh, no, I'd probably give that to Robert Anton Wilson, because though he did have his, his journey through Chapel Perilous, uh, he, he came out pretty intact. Um, you know, he had, he had some loose thinking sometimes later in later his books. There's, there's wince-worthy parts of some of his positions. But in general, I think he hewed to a pretty good deep agnostic perspe- perspective or what I like to think of more philosophically as like real skepticism not the not the skepticism that people mean today when they usually mean some kind of atheist materialist snarky attitude but real skepticism in the sense of withholding assent to belief what does it mean to live with as much as possible without beliefs or to hold beliefs very very lightly um, there's some great medicine in that, and it can also be toxic, that kind of attitude. But I think Wilson represents a pretty, pretty coherent um, manifestation and affirmation of that view. I think Terence uh, uh, was also, in many ways, uh, surprisingly, given the wild, outlandish ideas he was wont to uh, speak from the stage, that in some ways he was also uh, a skeptic. He loved science more than he loved religion. Um, and he certainly was had a lot of doubt about a lot of claims that other people uh, made. But he also definitely fell fell into his own kind of idée fixe, his own um, messianic uh, downloads. You know, he thought he really thought he had discovered in the structure of the I Ching this map of time and the ingression of historical novelty and an explanation for the transformation of history that we're all actually kind of experiencing in a very accelerated way. In some sense, he was modeling that process, so as an allegory, it works well, but it was also really important for him that it had the kind of form of science, that it was some kind of real map that that really told us something about time and novelty and the historical calendar. Uh, And I go into some detail about that and kind of critique it to, to, uh, to a certain extent. Uh, because of the way that it sort of uh, it moved him away from the kind of pure um, agnostic position that I think in, in some ways all of, all of my figures are kind of wrestling with and, and trying to manifest. Uh, you're kind of operating from the framework of Bruno Latour in, uh, in understanding this stuff, and you reference a book called, uh, help me with the name, The, the, the Factish God, something like that. Oh, yeah. So he's not saying that there's no such thing as facts. He's not like a pure cultural relativist. But he does have this idea that our realities are kind of, there's like multiple realities that are sort of intersecting with uh, different frameworks per, for perceiving reality. And 
unless we understand this kind of more complex intersubjectivity in a way that's not just by the cult of science or the cult of facts, we're going to just perceive anybody who's got a different reality as being crazy or being brainwashed or something like that. Is that is that fair to say? Or maybe you could say a little bit more about Latour? Sure, yeah. What, what interests me in Latour is a way of thinking about pluralism uh, as both... Uh, a constructive, a constructed process. You know, we hear a lot. Oh, it's a social construction. And we go, well, no, but the whole thing is a construction. Trees are constructions. The whole thing is making itself through repeating it through repeating itself uh, over time. And so, I really like his sort of robust sense of construction, um, and that uh, uh, we're we're invited to enter a world where facts have a certain claim. They're not the same thing as opinions. There's a difference. It's a real difference. But that difference itself is something that comes about through processes, social processes, but also processes of relating between human animals and uh, the outside, whether you want to call it nature. He has a whole critique of the, the, the term. I appreciate it. We don't need to go into it. But that there's something outside of us that we're interacting with, and out of that encounter, we build real things that make real differences even though they're they don't necessarily refer to some ultimate underlying metaphysical ground and that's a very appealing position for me i mean i'm I'm anti-essentialist in that sense but i don't believe in this kind of um you know sort of hyper floaty relativism of like postmodernism. there's a big difference in my mind politically and ontologically between pluralism and Relativism, but people often confuse. Oh, you're a pluralist. You just mean you're relativist. Everybody has the same point of view. And I'm like, no. There's real differences. They have pragmatic effects. But once we embrace this worldview, where there are, in a sense, multiple kinds of ways of being, that's the key. Is that there are different ways that different things and entities are. There are different modes of existence. And so once we acknowledge that, we start to go, oh, so some of these far-out experiences that otherwise you want to either write off or then a few people believe wholeheartedly as the only revealed truth, that instead they have a kind of different sort of claim. And once you start seeing it that way, then for me, the kind of world of human experience, the world of altered states, the world of religious experiences, the world of paranormal experiences, it all opens up in a certain way where it's not suddenly all capital T true, but it all has a certain density, a kind of uh, what Latour calls it has its own sort of ontological pasture where it nibbles. Uh, and I'm just interesting, interested in exploring those and, 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 and grappling with them because Again, even if um, we decide they're kind of maybe not so helpful, or maybe they lean towards psychosis or bad experiences, in other ways, they're clearly part of of our profound creativity, profound transformative uh, potentials, and they're also very much a part of our contemporary moment. You know, the the return of psychedelics, the the pervasiveness of conspiracy theory and occult uh, ideas, the sort of everyday sense that reality itself is a little bit less uh, grounded and it's kind of like up for grabs and it feels like there's all these different agents and, and, and programs and institutions and algorithms and uh, faceless forces, uh, conspiracies even, cabals of control that are, that are manipulating and playing with the very fabric of our everyday experience. Like all of that stuff points to the importance of paying attention to these fringe experiences in a way that, and this is one of my kind of mantras, takes them seriously without taking them literally. It's interesting to hear about how some people talk about McKenna's work today, specifically Joe Rogan, who has like, you know, is hugely culturally uh, influential. Um, and if he's got a ontological politics, it seems to be this idea that there's there's this like substratum of love and unity beneath everything that you can reach through meditation or through psychedelics. And that kind of expression of humanism and compassion really resonates with people, but he simultaneously uh, mixes it with these like intellectual dark web ideas that often point 
towards authoritarianism and bigotry. So I guess I noticed that ta- you, you say that at some point Terence McKenna, uh, although he rejected Marxism, he called himself a crypto anarchist. So what do you what do you think his politics are, uh, or what do you think are the political potentials of his ideas now that he's become sort of a, a, a guru for a new generation? Yeah, that's an interesting idea. You know, I, I, I'm not enough of a, of a student of, of Mr. Rogan to really um, understand how his DMT experiences and his love of McKenna's rap raps sort of inform his own uh, positions, especially when you start connecting, you know, things that, um, you know, something like an experience of universal love that's underlying all reality you know, seemingly positive, uh, progressive value, and then how that gets locked into other kinds of positions. Um, I think Terrence himself, you know, uh, in some ways, uh, I, I think he's as, it's, it's good to see him as an anarcho-libertarian as anything. And, you know, the relationship between anarchism and libertarianism in, in American politics and history is actually kind of complicated. And, uh, and that um, the... Uh, uh, you know, now there's a tendency to just see the libertarian as just this kind of like rapacious Silicon Valley uh, market forces rule all character. But if you look at someone like Robert Anton Wilson, who probably called himself a, a libertarian, even once called himself a right wing anarchist, though he didn't use that phrase very often, um, it does point to that there's a, there were different dimensionalities, particularly in the 60s and 70s. Um, where there was obviously a kind of libertarianism inside of hippiness, a sort of like let everything go, a kind of radical permissiveness that was open to multiple ways of being. And then I, I think aspects of that are really, you know, are, are important, and they're also still part of, of contemporary anarchist thought. We just don't see them as much within so-called libertarians because they, they have been, become so dominantly, you know, market monsters these days. But I think probably politically it would be is fair to say... Uh, McKenna had that kind of perspective, but one real difference for him, and why he did, he was was not a fan of, of uh, like hippie mysticism, was that he was he was very interested in technology, and in fact his earlier writings from the late 60s, his earliest writings that we have, are more about technology than they are about drugs. They're more about this kind of futuristic science fictional mutational uh, release in a, in a kind of, um, tr- not necessarily transcendental, but real world-changing world way. I mean, he was a big student of McLuhan. He loved his science fiction. He knew something about electronics and computers, thought about them at a time when that was actually ra- kind of radical. Uh, and that's sort of like an underlying layer of his thought that you see later on in, in the kind of 90s McKenna that we know much better, partly through his interest in this sort of transformative object at the end of the time. So the idea that technology is part of the process that, that realizes and ends history and releases something else, whether it's on a cosmic scale or some you know dimension of consciousness that we can't reach otherwise. So... You know, in a sense, you could call that a kind of accelerationist perspective in our terms now. But he was also always a humanist and had that that hippie libertarianism or that hippie sense of, like, multiple possibilities, multiple types of people. You know, he was certainly in, by no means an uh, authoritarian. Um, but he wasn't, you know, an uh, 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 utterly con- uh, kind of systematic or uh, thinker. Um, you know, he, he took different positions and played them off against each other, uh, and would do that do that frequently. But so then, what's what's the political import of this? You know, I think that anything that can shake shape shake us out of a certain way of identifying with the contemporary self, even temporarily, and to understand different ways of being and relating, particularly in the context of a larger natural or ecological or even cosmic environment that those kinds of experiences, though they may be weaponizable in different ways, uh, nonetheless hold out a hope for the kinds of forms of collectivity and, and imagination I think we need. You mentioned that you think that time period of post-68, early 70s, is kind of back in a way. And, and certainly it's back in terms of there's uh, a new space age, um, 
there's a, a revival of futurist ideas being proposed openly on, like, you know, the, the presidential stage with, you know, Peter Thiel's support of Trump, Andrew Yang talking about universal basic income. Um, obviously, there's a lot more things that are similar uh, in, in terms of, like, this kind of political doom setting in as well, environmental doom. So basically what I'm saying is what's going on now is not exactly new. Um, and it's interesting reading some of these, these writers talking about the political moment, sort of basically to, uh, the moment in the 70s talking about things that are really cropping up now. So what, what do you see as the similarities between then and now? And, and what kind of lessons do you think we could learn? Yeah, one of the reasons I wanted to write the book the way I did and to embed all three of these figures in the 70s very overtly and to constantly connect their individual stories to these larger cultural currents is not just to just do the standard thing of historicizing, but actually to bring to life some of the you know weirder and more transformative potentials of the decade and, and really to recognize just how strange and marvelous... Uh, and difficult, uh, existentially difficult, that period of time was. Because I do believe that if there's one period in American history that resonates with our current condition, it's the 70s. And in a way, if that's surprising or if that comes off as like a kind of audacious claim, it's only because we haven't really wrestled or integrated the 70s into cultural history. And I think that's true in a lot of ways. We, We think of the 70s, we think of the superficial tacky stuff like the you know, bell bottoms and the whatever and the disco and not that it's not that disco superficial, it's actually really profound, but in the way in which it's just a signifier of just kind of hedonistic fun or Star Wars or Jaws or this kind of uh, smiley faces, shag carpets, all that stuff is it's almost a dodge because the reality of the situation was very existentially raw, very difficult. Uh, full of trauma and full of also of a sense of possibility in the sense that that's all we're doing. We're just constructing reality. We're ultimately responsible for it or whatever forces are constructing it through us. Uh, and that awareness was very much part of the 70s as well as the creativity of the 70s. New collectives formed, people moved back to the land, people uh, tried out new technological arrangements, they fantasized about the future in all sorts of ways. I mean, the futurism of the 70s is really powerful. Like Tim, Tim Leary, you know, he has this radical transformation in the mid-1970s from kind of like a Hindu acid guru from the 60s into this like post-humanist almost an accelerationist but not with you know the kind of nihilism of that but really looking towards the future of space migration intelligence amplification a utopian uh, impulse but one that's very much expressed in technological and, and, and scientific forms um, and so there's a lot of these kind of resonances. You mentioned surveillance. You know, it's like that was the era of like paranoia. That was we see all these paranoid movies. There's all this stuff about technical surveillance. We're in that zone. It's an era of environmental concern. Uh, the the first years of Earth Day. The sense that we're on a planet. Uh, that the planet is limited. That you know pollution is no joke. There's no place to lodge externalities anymore. That we're, we're in that. It's an era of terrorism. We have the first like pop terrorists. Uh, you know, we're you know they're hijacking planes. They're killing people in in Italy and Germany and the United States. It's scary for, for a lot of people. It's also reminds us about the role. You know the complex role of violence and revolution and the fact that change is sometimes violent and how do we think about that. So there's a lot of these sort of stray resonances that I think are really important to go to. And, I, and, and behind a, a lot of it, I think, is also another connection, which I talk about in the end of the book where I try to wrap up these threads, um, is the fact that be, if you look between the kind of the, the lines a little bit, you see the rise of the network society a new kind of mode of technology, a new mode of capitalism that has to do with the network both as a literal technology, the emergence of the internet, the beginnings of computer conferencing and, you know, the the sense of 
of being able to make a more resilient, more networked kind of production process, but then a larger idea of the network as a kind of new form of society, which is also about subculture and also about electronic communication, um, also about a kind of uh, non-hierarchical, horizontal multiplicity. So it's, it's very complicated. There's lots of different layers and readings of it. It's not doesn't boil down to right or left or good or bad. It's a, it's a whole complex formation that really emerges in the 70s. That's really where our era, we begin there. We don't begin in the 60s or even in the post-war era, in my view, because, you know, we shift to a consumer uh, economy with the credit economy. There's these new forms of tracking us as consumers. There's the growth and the kind of incorporation of diversity as a kind of lifestyle, as a kind of consumer position, and the market helps diversify the social reality in the United States so that there is more room for queers and women and, you know, uh, people of color. And even though it was not perfect and there was a lot of problems, that is when you see this kind of turn towards multiplicity and diversity that is now so you know, uh, dominant as a, as a liberal ideology and so repulsive to our, you know, our right-wing nationalist Grumpy Tunes characters. So it, it really, to me, it all kind of goes back to this era. And so to go back and wrestle with the, the visionary, almost prophetic experiences of some of these characters prophesying psychopathology as much as they're prophesying the possibility of new collectivities, of new forms of creativity, of a, of a no longer terrestrial civilization, uh, it just seems really, um, uh, yeah, it just seems like a really important thing to do. Yeah, it's a little bit off topic, but Adam Curtis's All Watched Over by Machines of Love and Grace goes into this point a lot, especially about cybernetics and how the, the back the land movement and a lot of the ideology that came out of the 70s, uh, you know, the objectivism of, of entrepreneurs, uh, their influence on Ayn Rand, of, of finance, capital, all kind of have this common root in this idea of cybernetics and ecology or a cybernetic ecology. And he connects that to uh, the color revolutions and to Occupy. I mean, he, he made it before Occupy, but basically it explained what was going to go wrong with Occupy, where people thought that if you just come together with this process that gives everyone like an equal voice to reach consensus, that they would just kind of naturally come to a consensus and an agreement, and that would function. And against the power of the state and the power of capital, you know, you need to operate a little bit differently. I, I think it's too much to ask society to learn the lessons of the 70s, but I, I think if there's another Occupy-like moment, a lot of people will have learned the lesson, that lesson from Occupy. And maybe that's a little bit overly optimistic. Well, I mean, you know, Adam Curtis has a particular take on the on the West Coast that is now very fashionable, particularly among European intellectuals, where they can, they just write off the whole thing. They say, you know, like the the the, the thesis or the you know demonstration that like uh, uh, Turner did in in from counterculture to cyberculture is the whole story that the counterculture and its libertarianism and whatever was just inevitably going to feed into this dominant form of digital capitalism that we have now, and therefore, they, through that, they write off the whole thing. And I think it's a really unfair way of treating history and historical moments, particularly when there are moments with the degree of diversity and, and kind of different operations that people are doing, the kind of creativity, the kind of intensities uh, that were going on at that time. And, and nor do I think that the, you know, and behind it is also is a kind of uh, leftist intellectual fear of ecology. You know, what, what, like it, to, to say, oh, well, ecology is just a form of cybernetic thinking, and cybernetic thinking we can see is really much more about how the state reorganizes itself in the post-war environment. Uh, I think does, does a disservice to the material environment, does a disservice to the way in which uh, forms of thought, forms of technology can have multiple political possibilities that have more to do with how they're worked out in historical time than in some essential position. So they want to see, he wants to see the idea of a kind of, of a cybernetic self-consciousness that, that uh, locates individuals within functioning uh, uh, systems that can be either ecological or technological or both, uh, and to, to sort of see that whole thing as kind of inherently, uh, you know, right libertarian is, you know, to my mind, a, a, a sort of weak 
uh, read of of the historical process. That say, it makes there's there's a certain sense uh, as well. I mean, it's very easy to see the way that these things become co-opted or the way they become drawn into the to our existing moment. But that seems to be true of almost everything, uh, you know, in, a, in an unfortunate way. Yeah, and. Uh I don't want to say I, I subscribe to the Curtis thesis 100. percent You know, perhaps he doesn't either. It's uh, he he'll, he build, he builds these narratives that actually resemble like a very intellectual conspiracy theory, where it's like you've got Anne Rand and Edward Bernays, and they talk to this person, and this person's in the Clinton administration, and uh, you know, so you got to. We all have to be careful, even though he's more on our side than on Alex Jones's side. We have to be careful not to take everything he says at face value. Uh, but moving back to your book a little bit, the last two episodes of the show, I talked about UFOs and critical perspectives on MUFON and uh, different hypotheses of UFOs and stuff. And I thought, talking to you, we would we would move away from that subject. But alas, we haven't. Uh, there's a, a cameo in your book by Jacques Vallée. And he has a reputation today, I think because of his connection with Hynek, of being like a nuts and bolts ufologist who was just interested in like the material evidence of UFOs and studying it in a scientific way because he did have a fair amount of skepticism in, in his writing. But the truth is he was a, a figure deeply entwined with the occult and his understanding of the phenomenon was uh, a very occultist, um, parapsychological understanding influenced by Young and others. So um, Robert Anton Wilson is in the midst of this. Uh, was he in Chapel Perilous at the time? Was he having like, he was like fully disconnected uh, and he has this occult Aleister Crowley type ritual, and Valet attends and actually kind of talks him down. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a very interesting moment. You know, I mentioned this tightrope walk before, which is a sort of ability to go. It's it's like it's sort of like uh, Keats's idea of negative capability of of being able to uh, withhold res resolving ambiguity in a radical way as a kind of existential and intellectual position, and even a position, even a, an emotional position. Um, and uh, while I mostly talk about the, you know, my, the main figures, Valet is also a representation of this tightrope walk because he goes into these weird paranormal spaces, UFOs in particular, but also a lot of occult groups that he studied in the 70s. And he both, again, t he takes them seriously without taking them literally. And he kind of develops his own way of navigating that is partly skeptical, critical, anthropological, but also still open to its own forms of the weird. And so what happens in this story, it wasn't even really a ritual, it was basically just a party. So it was just like an occult party uh, with all these Discordians and people in the OTO and, you know, a bunch of uh, the occult demimonde of the, of the East Bay or the Bay Area. 1975. Anton LaVey? Uh, I don't think Anton LaVey was there, although Valet and LaVey were very good friends. Very good friends. He, he, he writes quite fondly about him in his, in his uh, journals, which are totally worth reading. I mean, if you're interested in Valet, totally got to read his journals. It's amazing they're published. Um, anyway, uh, so Robert Anton Wilson tells him his story is like all the synchronicities, all the books that are coming together, his reading, his dreams, you know, all this evidence that he's being contacted by these beings from Sirius. And, and Valet is like, yes, yes, this sounds, you know, sort of familiar, okay, but... It, it, to take it at face value is to take the bait. Mm -hmm. So in a way, Valet has kind of like a meta-conspiracy theory. It's not that he's like, no, 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 come back to reason. He's like, no, 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 use reason to not get trapped in your story while recognizing that there may actually just be a larger story or a larger plot that's going on, but keep your wits about you. Keep your reason and your critical thinking engaged, your appreciation for science, for evidence, for data, you know, all of that stuff. But you, you, in a way, you can't go back to a purely naive realism once you've had these kinds of experiences. It's hard to anyway. Some people do. But most people go, they have a door open. They're like, I don't know. I don't know what's really going on. And Valet then becomes this kind of interesting figure who's both sort of a healing figure and like a deeper trickster in a way. And he also comes up in the final chapter where I talk about the emergence of this, the network society, the fact that he's at Stanford Research Institute, he's working on early video conferencing, he's working with Scientologists and Est people and Ingo Swan, 
and uh, he's you know in touch with the remote viewing crew, but he's also just working on the internet. He's helping to build the the space of the internet. So he's a very interesting uh, you know figure that that you know I, I would lo- I would have loved to have written more about, but the book was already too long. In the early '90s, he comes up with a a new hypothesis. Well, I guess he he developed in the '70s, but a new hypothesis of UFOs, which was the uh, ultra terrestrial hypothesis that UFOs are a kind of control system. And this has a sort of conspiratorial edge to it as well. On one hand, is very skeptical of the extraterrestrial hypothesis in a way that I think is very good and valid. You know, he's asking us to broaden our imaginations and just assuming it's these kind of sci-fi aliens. On the other hand, he's saying that there is a deeper conspiracy, either actually like a government conspiracy or this kind of multidimensional power play going on. Another way of looking at it is that seeing the UFOs as these control systems is asking you to make sure you take you don't fall into that system, that you examine it and interact with it in a way where you're not being controlled by some external force. Another example from your book that I think illustrates this kind of well in terms of the occult and in terms of the interaction between fiction and reality is the, uh, the Philip seance, where a group of people in Toronto, uh, a group of they call themselves science and, skeptic- and skeptics, uh, made a fictional character and um, had a seance to, revi- to uh, re- bring back this fictional character. Um, and they said that even though things were happening that seemed very real, like things happening in the room that were like, you know, they didn't think anyone could have pulled it off as a trick, none of them believed in Philip. Uh, uh, do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Like yeah. I just told the whole story. Well, yeah, you did tell us. That's okay. It's a, it's a great story. I mean, what happens when you... that, that uh, I think one conclusion of it, and this is partly an answer to this, this question, but I think your accurate reading of, or at least a more productive way to look at this control systems... Uh, control system theory of valet, which is not to just fall into a larger meta-paranoid conspiracy but to begin to inculcate a certain way of being and thinking and responding and taking responsibility in the midst of an environment where the old rational rules no longer apply. So how do you sort of develop, again, the ability to to be a tightrope walker in these kinds of spaces, which in some sense are now part of our mainstream reality, if only because so many people believe them and they have obvious political consequences. Um, But I think it's probably more than that, too. I think we're actually discovering something about the way consensus reality is woven together based on belief. But the thing about belief is that there's beliefs that you hold consciously or that you are convinced of. And then there's a deeper order of beliefs, which is more like the meta-programmer. It's almost more like these are the, the fundamental beliefs that you just accept without thinking about them, you know. Beliefs, a belief in causality or a belief in time, you know, are examples where we're, we're you know, even if I change my idea, I still am going to interact in a world as if there's causality, as if there's time. But there are other forms of those beliefs as well. And I think what these, what, what, what experiments like the Philip experiment shows, and that maybe the placebo effect shows, because sometimes placebo has been shown to work even when people know it's a placebo. What does that mean? Well, that means that there's some part of you or some part of the body or the psychic system or whatever you want to call it that um, is ready for those beliefs even if the conscious, rational eye does not accept them. Uh, And so that's where you get partly into, you know, again, another kind of conspiracy where there's like all these symbols and, and signs that are going around all the time, transmissions, manipulations, subliminal messages that we don't even receive consciously but are man- manipulating our kind of under unconscious belief set. There's probably some degree of that. But I think that the Philip experiment also, also shows that you can kind of take control of that process, at least to a degree, where you can program your own deep-seated belief system simply by throwing out a, an assumption or a possibility. So in that sense, it's that kind of plasticity is also very uh, creative. 
you know, that, that, that the, it's not just that we have to be burdened with the kinds of concepts and fundamental beliefs we have about people's capacity to come together or people's capacity to overcome their differences or to overcome their, their lowered, you know, motivations, that you don't even need to believe in ideology maybe to be able to move into a place of more productive possibility. Well, you know, and that's, that's one, that's, you know, that may be a more, um, you know, utopian spin on the thing but in the in the case of the 70s at least it's sort of like again the cat is out of the bag the beliefs can be played with programmed reframed within oneself as as well as within culture and that those go on to produce phenomenological marks on that reality or on that on that person and that's sort of a loop that we're in that's kind of distressing even dis- disturbing, and yet also has within it genuine creative possibility. Robert Anton Wilson said that the more you believe, the less you can perceive reality. Um, so how can we understand that that's kind of like the nature of the way belief works, that if you, if you believe something too strongly, you're just going to be a more closed-minded and ignorant person, less capable of, understand- of perceiving reality? while still moving towards something that, you know, we might politically or philosophically agree with. Yeah, the whole issue of how beliefs function positively or whether they're necessary, how they're necessary is, I think, a really profound one. I mean, the, the problem, one of the problems with someone like Wilson is you're like, oh, okay, we can, we should look, grow to distrust beliefs, hold them lightly at best, uh, remain open to a, a, a world with multiple claims, um, but are those uh, feelings, are those thoughts, are those positions ones that, um, but is, is that precisely how we come together? Is that precisely how we form, you know, uh, uh, you know, real politics is through those ideas and beliefs? Like, can we actually have a movement of people who don't hold beliefs? And that's an interesting problem. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it gets us into some anarchist metaphysics that are that are really deep and really interesting, and I touch on a little bit um, in the book. But I do think it's important, just on an individual level, to recognize that it's not a, an, an either-or, that as we become aware of our beliefs and become aware of how our beliefs structure our perceptual reality because of assumptions we're making about people, assumptions we're making about ourselves, assumptions we make about how the world is, and then it's always more than that. It's always... There's, there's more chaos in the picture than we imagine. One way of just sort of getting into t- to tune with that is to increase our subtlety of perception. So it's just a very embodied process, and this was part of Wilson's whole thing, too. It was very much about the body. It was very much about empirical experience. It was not some other concept or some other you know, weird um, altered states trip that there was something also about just becoming very intimate with the way in which reality looks, tastes, smells, you know, uh, the way it, it spills across your nervous system, and to begin to be able to let, let go of your beliefs temporarily, to tune into a perceptual stream that's not as marked as it normally is. And that's one thing that psychedelics can do, is they actually deconstruct your ongoing real-time models of how reality operates and it's happening neurologically at the very least and open up this sort of sense of like wow these things are only so they're only provisional is that good is that bad i think it can be very helpful at a time when the belief wars are a significant part of what we're uh, what we're undergoing um i guess just to, to close it out the the name of the show is prolet cults uh, it, it refers to a mass project of proletarian education uh, that is today famous for its futurist elements, its interest in cosmism, in life extension technology, and, uh, and what else? Rocketry, traveling into space. Basically a kind of uh, a materialist messianism. And I think it's interesting that when you have these revolutionary moments like, like 68 or 1905, there's this surge of belief and interest in the future that's not only just ideas but they're also actionable they also build something new in reality and point the direction and so you know even though the the prolet call to the biocosmist immortalists were socialists and the uh, the kind of bay area scene might have been a little bit more libertarian or more market oriented 
there is a commonality in those projects that I think is really interesting. You know, just, just maybe just wrap that up. Is this, it, it is this kind of transhumanist problem, and, and just by using that word, I'm already kind of located it more than I want to. It's this, this po- the possibilities of, of you know, human beings on this planet with our machines, and, and the, you know, we're not going back. We're not going backwards, you know. We're going forwards. It's just—it's happening. We're on that thing, and there was there's something about the, again, sometimes politically naive, but also uh, this this enthusiasm and willingness to look at the the future and all its enormity and its deep destabilizing effect, and to still insist on pleasure on the body on uh, on forms of being that are creative on even spiritual ideas of uh, better ways of being that that is a, a thread that runs across these these very different worlds um, and that I think part of what we're at is we may need that aspect of the future the the cosmic aspect even the the literal off you know off world aspect to stir us out of this kind of the dystopian fixations that, for all their legitimate claims, seem to be having a very oppressive effect on social reality and the cultural imagination these days. So we, whether we want to or not, we got to look to the stars. Word. That's a great way to end it. What else you got going on? Technosis, the podcast? Yeah, I mean, I'm still doing expanding my podcast. I'm off for the summer, but there's a huge archive, and a lot of these ideas are explored there. And uh, yeah, just just pu- pushing the book. It's fun. And you got you're going to be on Rogan, right? I, so I I don't know. You tell me. You got to. We have a friend named Jake Flores who just went to L.A. on the vague pretense that he might be on the show. And you can't email him, so he was just kind of like walking around LA looking for him. <laughs> I, I don't want to. I don't want to do that. <laughs> I want a guaranteed slot if I'm going to go. <laughs> okay. Thanks a lot, Eric. Yeah, anyway. I've been a big fan of Black Mirror since the beginning. I think it does what horror and sci-fi ought to do, expose the nascent terror of our day-to-day lives and the trap we're walking into through the plausible depictions of not-too-distant dystopias. My favorite episode was from last season, Metalhead, a nearly silent suspense thriller in which a Boston Robotics-style attack dog chases a woman trying to steal supplies from an Amazon distribution center in a post-apocalyptic or more horrifying future than Carmack McCarthy's The Road. In The Road, there's the, the father and son traveling through this post-apocalyptic wilderness, and their enemies are these other people that they encounter as they scavenge for goods. But here, in Metalhead, the enemies are Amazon Logistics themselves, an autonomous system that has outlasted capitalism. The result is there is an immense abundance, protected not by people or artificial intelligence, but by the almost undefeatable guard dogs. The horror in the episode, then, asks the reader not to only question Amazon robotics, but private property itself. In the same season, there's Hang the DJ, where dating app users have their personality simulated into an artificial reality in which they must rebel against the confines of the software in order to demonstrate the viability of their love. The twist ending is that the actual users of the app do not know about the love story of their simulated avatars. They only receive the results as a match percentage. So even those who break out of the app's mediation of their relationship only succeed in proving the premise of the app. This has always been the nihilistic edge of Black Mirror's critique of technology. That rebelling is incorporated into the system, and viewers like me are curious in how new seasons will tackle this problem. So I was disappointed in season five, uh, that was only three episodes. So I was disappointed to see that season five was only three episodes. True, we were treated to the potentially days-long bandersnatch, 
But although I enjoyed the concept of the choose-your-own-adventure movie, I ultimately felt the form overshadowed the plot. Most conversations on the episode that I had were about how far people got, how many endings they saw, and not that there is actually a winning ending, and that to get there, you have to push the main character further into madness and self-destructive violence in order to receive a positive review of his video game, and away from his impulse to reject the paranoid feeling that he himself was a character in a video game that we control, a sinister conclusion about free will, agency, and the passive sadism of gamers and basically all consumers of commodities. The first episode of Season 5, Striking Vipers, is also about video games. It begins with what looks like two strangers, Danny and Theo, meeting at a club. When their mutual friend Carl arrives and talks to both, we discover they are already a couple. Their flirtation was a role-play of two strangers organically meeting. The three go home, Danny and Theo have sex, then Danny and Carl play this Mortal Kombat-like video game, Striking Vipers, until the early morning. Ten years later, the couple is married. They own a home, they have a child, and are working on a second. Carl is now somewhat estranged, and he shows up at their neighborhood barbecue. He is still a gaming bachelor, a life that Danny, who seems depressed as a family man, has long left behind. Carl gives him the latest version of Striking Vipers, which is played mentally through a neural implant that allows you to feel as though the characters are actually fighting. That night, the two play, choosing the same Asian female and male fighters they chose in their youth, in their respective, in their respective homes, motionless on their couches. That night, the two play, choosing the same Asian female and male fighters they chose in their youth, in their respective homes, motionless on their couches. But the roughhousing feels real, and the two organically end up having virtual sex. It becomes an addiction to them, better than the real thing, so good that they don't mind that they are technically two male friends having sex with one another. Interestingly, the dilemma in this episode has nothing to do with technology, but only the hang-ups of the protagonists. Danny doesn't believe the simulated sex is cheating on his wife, but worries that he might be gay. His wife, noticing his lack of sexual desire, assumes he's having an affair and complains that she could be sleeping around too, but hasn't for the good of the marriage. Swearing he's not having an affair, he decides to cut off the gameplay with Carl, rather than telling her. Carl is somehow heartbroken by the end of this relationship. A year later, everything is resolved after Danny and Carl kiss and have a climatic real-life fight and battle, a scenario so comparatively banal to the video game that they come clean to Theo and develop a mutual arrangement. They will occasionally have sex in the game, and Theo will occasionally have casual sex in real life. Polyamory for the win! But a weird conclusion for Black Mirror. Not only is the technology here seen as being purely liberating, but it is level with the real sex his wife is having. The implication of the happy ending is that the banality of the bourgeois life the three are living actually lacked the technology to challenge the monogamous heteronormativity so depressing to Danny. Well, Black Mirror can't always crush us. I thought assuming the next episode, Smithereens, would return us to the iPhone horror we've come to expect. The main character, Chris, a.k.a. the hot drunk priest from Fleabag, is part of a Fight Club-esque support group for people who lost loved ones, and much of their commonality has to do with the way social media has contributed to or exacerbated their loss. Chris hatches a plan to get even by taking a job with a rideshare app and kidnapping an employee of Smithereen, an unambiguous analog for Twitter, in order to say something to their CEO, an unambiguous analog of Jack Dorsey, played by Topher Grace. Over the course of the hostage situation, an interesting interplay develops between the Smithereen executives and the responding police, in which the corporation's programmers and consultants are far better detectives and hostage negotiators than law enforcement. When Jack finally is on the phone, it's revealed that the extent of Chris's plan was only to tell Jack his tragic but unremarkable backstory of indirectly killing his partner when he checked a Twitter notification while driving. Jack listens empathetically, but when the story is over, Chris reveals he has no demands. He's going to release the hostage and kill himself. Jack and the employee try to talk him out of it, asking what they can do to help. Chris says there's nothing they can do, aside from maybe reconsidering the way the app is designed to be so addictive. Something Jack admits he regrets was the work of the marketing department, a distraction from the mission of the platform he built to enable the same sort of empathetic communication enabled by the very hostage situation. When Chris puts the gun in his mouth, the smithereen hostage struggles to pull it away. 
The police misinterpret this struggle, shoot Chris, possibly killing the hostage in the process. And the closing montage, there are scenes of people all over the world happily checking their notifications. It's almost like a PSA. These apps are fine, but be careful. Don't text and drive. The real danger, the show implies, is the old-fashioned forces of the state who misinterpret the struggles of social media because they are beyond their control, and thus any intervention can only make matters worse. Admittedly, it would be pretty boring if every episode of Black Mirror was iPhones bad, Facebook bad, Amazon bad, and like to entertain the idea that capitalism is building the public platform and squares from which it will be executed. But both these episodes are openly defensive of capitalism. Chris essentially admits it's his own misuse of technology that ruined his life, and the characters in Striking Vipers likewise only suffer from a minor case of bourgeois ennui, a conflict so offensively weak the writers had to make the characters black so that this wouldn't just be a story about bored, rich white people. The fact that they role-played as Asian characters in the game adds another level to a convoluted racial dynamic completely unaddressed in the writing of the script. So it's some relief that technology is made sinister again in the season's final episode, called Rachel, Jack, and Ashley 2. Miley Cyrus stars as Ashley O, a pop star whose new hit is a bubblegum version of Nine Inch Nails' Head Like a Hole, or as they call it, I'm on a Roll. The song is played on repeat by the shy teenage protagonist Rachel, to the disapproval of her grunge sister and roommate Jack. When a Furby-sized robotic, ver- robotic version of Ashley O called Ashley 2 comes on the market, Rachel gets it immediately. Although it is supposedly the complete brain and personality of Ashley O in software form, it turns out to be a saccharine, smarter child-like chatbot that encourages Rachel to come out of her shell, practice dancing, and make new friends. Jack eventually realizes, through Rachel's connection with the robot, that she has been a bad sister and tries to help fix Ashley too when it malfunctions. In the process, Jack finds there is a limiter in the software that prevented it from truly expressing itself. Finally free of the limiter, robotic Ashley O reveals that she is a prisoner of her manager, who drugged her into a coma and plans to continue to harvest her mind for new songs and turn Ashley O into a hologram performer. The three assemble to save Ashley O from the coma, interrupt the unveiling of the hologram, and create the grunge band she always wanted to have. The episode ends with her playing the original Nine Inch Nails version of Head Like a Hole, a song about how God Money commands us to give up our soul to exploit one another in order to be free, but in the process we become servants to money. So while the theme of the pop star as commodity is well done, especially demonstrating how mass consumerism asks us to relate to objects instead of one another, there is once again, like in the previous two episodes, a simple fix. Let Ashley O play the kind of music she wants to play. Let her swear, write songs derivative of Nine Inch Nails and Smashing Pumpkins, and play at clubs where people are free to mosh and stage dive. This is again just a simple fix, like Jack's desire to use Twitter ethically or a virtual reality game that allows us to explore our sexuality. Ultimately, these are about ethical choices for consumers, about challenging ourselves to engage with media and technology in ways that free us instead of limiting us. Fair enough, but what is totally absent in this season are deeper critiques that these technologies also trap us in a dystopian construction that only gets stronger the more we criticize it or try to change our own behavior. Grunge is a great metaphor for this, but Kurt Cobain is a much better reference point than Trent Reznor or Billy Corrigan. Unable to reconcile the contradiction between being a critic of pop and a pop star himself, Cobain disintegrated in drug use and eventual suicide. It was not censorship that killed him, but the opposite. He was free to say whatever he wanted against the establishment he hated, and the establishment only profited all the more for it. These were the twist endings of both 15 Million Merits from Season 1 and the Waldo moment from Season 2, in which a citizen of a dystopian future and a political satirist are elevated to the highest levels of popularity and political power through the harsh denunciations of the system. I interpreted these to be the avators of Black Mirror writer Charlie Brooker, whose Daily Show-style send-ups of British politics and Black Mirror cynicism of technology elevated him into international fame on the BBC and Netflix. At his best, these shows show us it is not enough to merely denounce the system, but to figure out how to struggle against it in a way that both frees you from its structure, and defeats its architects. Something like the ending of USS Callister from Season 4. 
Season 5 offers no such hint at a revolutionary liberation, but instead sing-alongs that, however grungy, only make us feel better about bowing down before the ones we serve. <laughs>